0: Warning, this podcast contains adult language, mature themes, and graphic descriptions of real-life crime scenes and is not intended for younger or more sensitive listeners. You You have have been been
1: warned.
0: and welcome back to this spooky show the last and best known tourist spot adjacent to the gates of hell you can peruse the gift shop for cursed objects because i mean let's be honest that's all we have that's true (laughs) we are your cursed tour guides the ghoul babes i'm a little bit of the bubbly i'm lauren god
2: damn it (laughs) it's happening
1: and i'm plan 10 from outer space vivian
2: (laughs) and i'm jade and if you thought last episode was irritating Uh, not already no (laughs) just wait until you get to my stories we said it was the gates of hell for a reason (laughs) this is why
0: can we at least stop for coffee (laughs) please i'm gonna need it with all these ear puns Oh god. and also joining us yet again despite our multiple attempts to to off him is our editor quincy
3: hi guys
0: so how did you get out of it this time can you Tell us, shed a little bit of light.
3: Well, you guys decided you wanted to reenact the uh, Ripper murders on me, and the first one he removed a uterus, which you quickly, after making an incision, realized I don't have.
0: Oh, yeah. That does make sense, doesn't it? Well, don't worry about it, because we're going to get you. How do you figure maybe this time we drop him into a vat of our saucy Jackie barbecue sauce and boil him alive? Ooh. Ooh. That sounds Sounds delicious. It does sound tangy and delicious
2: inside your asshole.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And thank you all for joining us for part two of Ripperology, the unsolved case of Jack the Ripper. Two weeks ago, we dissected, (laughs) 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 dissected the crimes down to some very gory details, and this week we will look into the names associated with the case and the most popular, as well as the most compelling theories about who done diddly done it.
1: There have been, by some estimations, at least 500 people put forth as suspects in the case by various historians, experts, and researchers. That's a lot. That is a yeah. lot. Some of these names are proposed on very flimsy circumstantial or non-existent evidence. I
0: got a couple
1: of those. Yeah, I have one too. <laughs> there, a few of these suspects and theories are quite popular, and while we may cover a few here due to the overall popularity of the theories, we will also provide counterproof as to why these popular and flimsy theories are just that, theories.
2: So join us, won't you, as we present the cases for and against the most popular and widely known suspects in the unsolved murders of Jack the Ripper. Please welcome back, making one more appearance, and has had a longer success streak than some of our invisible interns, the big board of facts you're dying to know! (gasps) Yay! I love you, big
0: board of facts! Have my babies!
2: (laughs) (laughs) First up is Lauren, with her case for the strange... James
0: Maybrick that's me not James Maybrick I'm Lauren
1: <laughs> let's not get <laughs> thanks confused for clarifying
0: now. <laughs> that <laughs> just in case anyone was confused so James Maybrick was a cotton merchant from Liverpool which was a job that required frequent travel to the United States in 1871 he settled in Norfolk Virginia to further develop his company while there he contracted malaria in 1874 and became addicted to the medication used to treat it at the time which contained arsenic Sounds like a great idea. Doesn't that sounds like a
1: great medicine? Here,
0: take this poison. It'll either cure you or kill you.
1: Either way, (laughs) win win. Oh, thanks for this medication. Will it help? I don't know. I'm fucking weird. Weirder shits happened. It could. (laughs) Just take it. Don't ask. You're gonna die anyway. Just take it. Yeah, just take it. Take it. it. Stop being such a baby. Don't be such a big bitch about it.
2: God, peer pressure in the 1800s. (laughs) Take it. Take it. Take it. Don't be such a bitch. Do you want to (laughs)
0: die? (laughs) <laughs> Was that a threat or kind of? I mean, I kind of do. Well, then this might do it. <laughs> So he would keep this addiction for the rest of his life. In 1880, he set up a second office in Britain and his constant travel back and forth put a considerable strain on his marriage. He did have several mistresses, which uh, I'm pretty sure also put a strain on the marriage. No,
1: it was totally the travel. Oh yeah, just 100%. Just 100% the travel. Just the
0: travel by itself. That was totally the problem. (laughs) wasn't the fact
1: that he was cheating.
2: No. Or taking a bunch of arsenic. Or taking a bunch of arsenic (laughs) and completely just going out of his
0: gourd. (laughs) So he had several mistresses, and upon learning about them, his wife, Florence Maybrick, kept a second lover as well, perhaps as a way to get back at him. Let me tell you, honey, that's not how you do it. But anyways, in 1889, his health very rapidly and suddenly deteriorated, and he died on May 11th, 1889. The circumstances surrounding his death were deemed, quote, suspicious.
1: (laughs) Wait a minute. What the man's been taking poison for like 20 years and
2: his death is suspicious
0: <laughs> oh it gets it gets funnier oh, God. believe and it's it or 1800s.
2: not 1800s the death is
0: suspicious <laughs> the death is suspicious in the 1800s people just drop dead for no good goddamn reason <laughs> we
1: have, he was taking arsenic all this time we have
0: no idea what I happened have, gee i wonder <laughs> so it was decided okay mm. okay it was decided his death could be attributed to arsenic poisoning. Kel's <gasps> surprise. Gasp! <laughs> <laughs> Administered by persons unknown. What? By himself? No. <laughs> Even though he was very heavily addicted to a medication that contained arsenic, but, you know, I'm a chill.
2: But, yeah, I'm a just chill. I, I don't know who gave it to him. Could have been him. Could have been Robert down the street. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> fuck Robert, because that's why. Fuck Robert. Sorry, Robert.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we don't know a Robert,
1: so I don't We don't know, know
2: a Robert, but I feel bad.
0: Now. So the finger was immediately pointed at his wife, even though he, you know what I said, I'm a chill. And and <laughs> I mean it, I'm a chill. She was convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of her husband. However, her case was reopened and it resulted in her release in 1904 as it was deemed her trial was unfair. Imagine that. As most were back in those days.
1: Yeah, but okay, peep this for a second. Right. I'm about to play devil's advocate. Oh, okay. Ooh. So If you were his wife and you were already mad at him Mm -hmm. for cheating on you, obviously, multiple times, Mm -hmm. and there's a strain on the marriage, wouldn't that be the most ingenious way to kill him would be to poison him with something he's already been taking? Oh, no doubt.
0: Like, that's genius.
1: That's genius level shit.
0: Absolutely. No doubt. I mean.
1: And as most, you know, crimes do, like these things, murders do hash out. It's usually the spouse that's mostly the guilty party. Mm. It's usually, you know, they have to research from the inner circle family out and it's most of the time the, the spouse
0: see it could be that thinking that you know got her released
1: it could be well that and the fact that they look at women at the time and go women aren't evil enough to do that stuff no they way. they didn't think women were capable of such you know oh. Na- oh, so underestimated
0: oh that's cute
1: isn't that adorable we'll get to
0: that a little bit more later Now that we have some background, we can get to the Jack the Ripper accusation. James Maybrick was accused posthumously in 1992, when it doesn't fucking matter anymore.
1: Yeah, it's a while. (laughs) Yeah.
0: When a document passed off as a diary entry of his emerged, in which he claimed responsibility for the Jack the Ripper murders. While the diary does not mention its author by name, you know, t'is I, James Maybrick when killed those woman. <laughs> you
1: mean you mean he didn't write his name on the inside like a teenage girl and put like a puffy unicorn sticker? Oh, and no,
0: like, no, no Lisa Frank stickers here.
1: <laughs> a heart-shaped lock on it? Nothing
0: like that. heart-shaped lock that you can literally bust with your fingers. Yeah. I, I speak from experience. I had a Lisa Frank diary in it. Why and did you her. have to
1: break the lock on your own diary?
0: <laughs> did you lose the key? God, Lauren. I, I, I'm very irresponsible, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no need to attack me. <laughs> so while the diary doesn't mention its author by name, it does make references that are consistent with Maybrick's life and career. The diary details various crimes, including the murders of the canonical five, as well as two other murders which, to this day, have yet to be proven or disproven. Probably didn't happen. The diary was published in 1993 as... Are you ready for this? Oh God! I'm the ready. Diary of Jack the Ripper. Such a creative name! <laughs> hey guys, what do we want to call the Diary of Jack the Ripper? I don't know. Diary of The Jack Diary the of Ripper? Jack the Ripper. Brilliant! Give Soul. this man a raise,
1: <laughs> Cratchit. You're working through Christmas.
0: <laughs> ah, nuts! <laughs> it was almost immediately dismissed by experts as a hoax. So there were tests done on the ink that the diary was written with. However, they were contradictory. The first test used a process called thin layer chromatography, which TLC. It don't used ten Don't go chasing Waterfalls. Don't go Jason don't go Jason Waterfalls. Don't do that either. Drag King name. Yes. Jason Waterfalls. Please welcome to the stage, Jason, Jason Waterfalls. waterfalls. <laughs> Tables, ladders, and chairs match. That'll be my second wrestling reference of the podcast. So anyways, first test used the TLC method and it showed that the ink used was a synthetic dye called nigrosine, which was readily available around the time the murders took place. However, the second test done using the exact same process find, found no similarities to the ink used in 1888. The third test got even further away from that year and stated that there was absolutely nothing in the ink consistent with the Victorian era period. Yes, that was a pun.
2: Oh, God. Don't steal my shtees, okay? I'm gonna. Just just, you
1: wait. It was just written with a Bic pen. (laughs) By then, they were just like, it was a Bic. It's fine.
0: So this basically is saying, like, this was 100% a hoax. It was written with a Bic pen. Somebody was basically writing Jack the Ripper fan fiction. Essentially. Yeah. Which is a thing. Go look it up. Oh God! Oh God. And then, don't, and then don't, actually. don't do that. No, 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 no. Look it up and tell us what
2: you find. We want to hear from you. No, we, no, don't. we <laughs> don't. Call us. We're standing by. Call
0: us. We're standing by now.
2: <laughs> 1-800-don't-fucking-dare.
0: <laughs> 1-800-please-don't-actually-do-this. <laughs> a fourth and final test was planned, but never carried out for reasons unknown. Probably because the other two tests were... You know, they, well, everything was kind of like gradually going downhill and
1: getting worse and worse. So, what's the fourth test going to tell you? Right. I'm assuming they the just fourth were... test was going to be like, it's not even ink. We don't even know what it is. <laughs> I
0: don't even know what the fuck this is. <laughs> Someone peed on this paper. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm assuming they were really trying to get the same results of the first one, so that they could be like, yeah, we've got a leg to stand on, instead of, well, shit.
1: <laughs> they this made is, themselves look worse by repeatedly testing. This is vegetable juice and
0: piss. <laughs> with ink
1: someone should have had a v8 (laughs) should
0: have had a v8 so among the inconsistencies with the type of ink used there were also inconsistencies with the handwriting and the type of speech used document expert kenneth w rendell actually stated upon viewing the document that the handwriting seemed more consistent with the 20th century than with the victorian era so somebody was trying a little too hard to make it sound like Jack the Ripper to make it sound old timey and legit. Right, this is one hundred percent most likely a hoax. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. By an English major, I guarantee you, fucking probably one (laughs) hundred percent. There are surprisingly arguments for its authenticity, though. Some people argue that the symptoms of arsenic addiction, which are described in the diary, are accurate and would be known to very few people. Also, some of the details provided about the murder were only known to the police and the Ripper himself until the book's publication.
1: Allegedly, that is. Again, known to few, I just Googled it and it told me what the,
0: what the (laughs) symptoms are.
1: So known to few and Google.
0: (laughs) Right. These are just like the the thinly veiled arguments for it. (laughs) Another claim is that one of the crime scene photos, now this one is reaching big time. One of the crime scene photos shows the initials FM, which could stand for Florence Maybrick or, you know, any other possible thing.
1: Yeah, or any other FM name.
0: Fuck your mother. Maybe
1: he was talking about radio. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe
0: he's pissed off about the radio. <laughs> Would you uh. like M or F? <laughs> <laughs> so it could stand for Florence Maybrick, whose infidelity was a possible motivation for the murders. The diary isn't the only bit of evidence suggesting James Maybrick could be our ripper, even though it really doesn't suggest much. However, I do kinda like this little piece of evidence here. In 1993, Albert Johnson of Wallasey presented a pocket watch with "J Maybrick" engraved on the inside, along with the words "I am Jack," which is a wonderful way to confess a crime. And from now on, be a pocket watch. Yeah. Yes. Any serial killers listening, step your pussies up. You yeah. gotta, you gotta confess <laughs> be a on. pocket watch. Come on,
1: step your game up. <laughs> Letters,
0: fucking floppy ransom drives. notes,
1: floppy drives. Fuck that pocket, pocket watch.
0: watch. <laughs> eh, copyrighted. Fuck that. Pocket watch. Ding! (laughs) Ding! But don't
2: fuck that pocket watch. But don't fuck that pocket watch. Your dick will get stuck in it.
0: (laughs) Also carved in the pocket watch were the initials of all of the canonical five. Upon analysis by Dr. Robert Wilde at the Interface Analysis Center at Bristol University, Wilde concludes that the engravings were several tens of years of age, which is a fun sentence to read. It's a weird way to... Several tens... Seventy. Yeah, just say the number. (laughs) Several tens of years of age, and was very unlikely that anyone had artificially aged them to make the watch look more authentic. So, diary bad, watch good. (laughs) That's that's what this breaks down to. Also, it is worth noting that James Maybrick looks an awful lot like the depictions of the Ripper in pop culture, with the mustache and the hat. But apparently everybody just looked like that. I think that was just the general look at the time. Everybody just looked like that. That was what was in. So, is this all circumstantial, or has a simple pocket watch uncovered the true identity of the elusive Jack the Ripper? No. But you be the judge. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> no. Maybrook seemed like an odd bird, for sure, in a compelling case, if true. And while a cotton merchant may have had ample opportunity to travel to London for murderous weekend getaways, what about an even stranger eccentric painter with a fascination with the Ripper? Ooh. Walter Sickert had been implicated in the Ripper crimes as early as the 1970s, but emerged with even more popularity in light of the Royal Conspiracy Theory, which I will talk about later, and the increasing popularity of DNA forensic technology in the 90s. He was a funny little man with a leaning towards the macabre. He was described as eccentric and peculiar even for the time, and he often painted about the Ripper. One of his paintings was even called Jack the Ripper's Bedroom. (laughs) It's just a blank canvas with the words "I did it" on it.
0: I have no idea what Jack the Ripper's bedroom looks like, but but I know here's exactly, his room. I know exactly what Jack the Ripper's bedroom looked and the, like. To be fair, the <laughs> painting when
1: you look at it does look an awful lot like the bedroom of last Ripper victim Mary Jane Kelly. Sickert also, oddly enough, occasionally dressed up as Jack the Ripper, the OG
0: cosplayer, and Your like, yeah, cosplayer. and not for
1: Halloween either or a costume party. Weird, right? Yeah, what's <laughs> it's weird, the- right? A right? Bit. Fuck,
0: like. Oogity
1: boo. <laughs> Any given Wednesday, and this giggly fuck might turn the corner dressed as London's worst nightmare. <laughs> giggly fuck! <Yeah. laughs> I wonder if anybody was like, "Whoa, dude, too soon!"
0: Like, the, Jesus! This would be terrible! Why would you do what? this? Bad taste, Their man. Bodies are still warm. Oh God! <laughs> he was like, "Why well, you don't like it, <laughs> dude?" Feel the
1: room. I got I, it re- 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 I got something for you to read. The room. <laughs> <laughs> Patricia Cornwell, mystery author and author of Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, which is kind of a big brag, but okay, huge, has been a big proponent of Sickert's, even claiming that she found DNA evidence linking Sickert to at least one of the Ripper letters. The claim is that Cornwell's team of forensic scientists found a sequence of mitochondrial DNA on several Ripper letters, which matched sequences found on several letters written by
0: Sickert. Mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Go do your taxes, Lauren. Mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Specific
1: watermarks were also matched in both Sickert's letters and those sent by the Ripper to police and media. Similar mitochondrial DNA matches were also found on envelopes and other papers. Watermarks, names, and phrases... That and drawings that were very similar had been seen in both the Ripper letters and the Sickert letters. According to Cornwell, who famously purchased one of Sickert's paintings, then proceeded to cut it in half.
2: Bitch. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> don't that's do what you this. do when you buy a painting. Because apparently she
1: just straight Nicholas caged that shit and just, I don't know what she thought she was going to find.
0: Some Dan Brown esque shit. She thing. claimed National that he Treasure inserted. Bullshit. Yeah,
1: she claimed he inserted clues and symbols about the Ripper into drawings and paintings. Some of these clues were claimed to be so similar to the actual crime scenes that only the true murderer could have painted them.
0: Are you okay? <laughs>
1: Cornwell claims that Sickert was impotent, childless, and had a fistula on his penis. Ow! Ow. Ow! Also, yeah. how
2: do you know? <laughs>
1: like if I, mm. ah. She believes that this led to an intense hatred of women and possibly spurred him to commit the murders. Many serial killers today are found to be impotent, and the act of murder becomes their only means of sexual gratification.
0: I have a thing on my dick, and it's your fault, And it's your woman. fault it's
1: there, <laughs> lady. Finally, no evidence exists to indicate that Sickert was anywhere but London during the canonical murders between August and November 1888, according to Cornwell. Cornwell, painting slashing aside, put together a compelling case that sold a lot of books. But the case she put forward, according to many Ripper researchers, is dubious at best. Mm -hmm. Many of the litters, and most of them actually, are considered to be hoaxes. At least two people were arrested and charged for hoaxing letters at the time, and interestingly enough, both the people arrested were women
0: oh 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 but but we're not evil enough i guess not evil
1: enough the openshaw letter which according to cornwell provided similar mitochondrial dna sequences and watermarks found to, to those found in sickert's correspondence has never actually been considered a genuine ripper letter by any serious author or researcher the openshaw letter was sent to dr thomas horrocks openshaw who was widely publicized in the papers for having examined the piece of kidney enclosed with the from hell letter
0: I showed you my kidney. Please respond.
2: <laughs> Check yes or don't, no on Don't the leave kidney. me on read. <laughs> Swipe right on the kidney. Swipe right on kidney. Ew. Ew. He just makes Ew. smudges across the paper. <laughs> Ew.
0: <laughs> Fuck it.
1: The only Ripper letter according to experts with a strong possible connection to the true murderer is the From Hell letter. And Cornwell found no links in the text of this letter between the author and Walter Sickert. The original letter no longer survives, so DNA or watermark testing would have been impossible. Nuclear DNA tests also performed on the letters came back negative, while mitochondrial DNA tests provided similar sequences. These results don't state that Sickert was the author of the letters. They only state that the person who left DNA on Sickert's correspondences cannot be eliminated from the percentage of the UK population who could have provided a mitochondrial match. So basically, it's a wide net.
0: Yeah, of like, people
1: there's not even like it's close to him doing it it's like it could have been one of these 200,000 people which because is it's similar. anybody
0: back in the day
1: yeah. right
2: that's basically the whole city at that time
1: also Sickert's DNA no longer exists as he was cremated after his death so there's really no way to test it for sure against mm-hmm. anything
0: like movie
1: writing right <laughs> considering the vast number of documents within the ripper correspondence the laws of chance dictate that coincidental similarities will appear more than 600 letters were sifted through during cornwall's research so yeah with that amount of letters you You're are gonna to find, find some them. similar things exactly. yeah especially with it not being as exact as nuclear dna mm-hmm. Sickert was obviously interested in the Ripper killings, but since art is very subjective, perhaps Weena. he was only sketching and painting a subject he was interested in. He's
2: a method painter, okay? <laughs> he didn't paint <laughs> with
1: like, blood, but still, you know. He
0: liked dressing up, looking in the mirror and going, yeah, that's probably what he yeah, looks like. that's probably what
1: it looked like. Maybe he was modeling. Ooh.
0: Himself. Of, it's better than thinking about him looking around the corner going, oogity, boogity boo! <laughs> jumping. <He's a> <laughs> ah, fuck, Jerry!
1: J- jumping, jumping out from behind buildings. <laughs> the Ripper. (laughs) He's like, God damn it with this again, Walter, really? The rent's due on the third. Get out of my yard. Get out of my yard, Walter. (laughs) Drawings and sketches are no real evidence and cutting up the painting was also insanely dumb. Yeah. That's
3: that's pretty
2: dumb. What if there was more evidence on that painting and you just kind of ruined it by cutting it in half? You just completely
0: butchered it. There is also
2: no... (laughs) there
1: there is also no evidence whatsoever that sickard's fistula was on his penis the only source of this testimony was his nephew by marriage and even he claimed it was only family hearsay while it is recorded that Sickert was treated for a fistula at a point in his life there is no documentary evidence to suggest that it was on his penis i'm pretty sure they would (laughs) have written that down it's kind of like a, a thing
0: it's kind of important so they pretty much were just like oh it was on his penis
1: yeah, I don't know where she got this like idea that it was on his like, it. I mean, it, yeah, it falls in with your theory of like, oh, his dick hurt, so he killed women, I guess, right. and that's literally the only thing <laughs> I could find. Hurt. My pee pee hurts. hurts, and it's your fault. <laughs> the doctors who performed the surgery were known for performing surgeries of the rectum, anus, and vagina. Nothing that says that they were even qualified to do surgery on the penis at all. <laughs> so there is no, like, I, I couldn't even find the thread that she was pulling for this one. Like, it was like, Okay. But if you literally so, just
0: reached for something. Right. It was definitely, definitely a
1: straw grab for sure. They're pretty sure that he, yes, it was documented that he did have a fistula at one point. They're pretty sure it was on the rectum they're pretty sure it was that area so i mean it
0: wasn't his vagina it was
1: not his vagina
0: damn i really wanted weird to his right
1: vagina. <laughs> weird how that would not have happened
0: that's also a really good insult like i wish that you had a fistula on your vagina Ugh. oh my god
1: <laughs> that's a horrible thing to s- wish on somebody i'm
0: gonna save that for people that truly piss me off <laughs>
1: now, i want you to google fistula later and then think about what you just said <laughs> oh no i've thought about it
0: <laughs> terrifying isn't it
1: there is also no evidence to imply that he was impotent. He is rumored to have sired at least one child by his mistress. A close friend of Sickert's, Jacques-Emile Blanche, described Sickert as an immoralist, with a swarm of children by, of provenances which were not possible to count. He had regular mistresses and was cited as being an adulterer by his first wife.
0: So he a ho. He basically. just basically
1: his friend just called him a hoe, pretty much in like old timey language.
0: He sprouted <laughs> at the top of the hoe tree and then fell and banged every broad on the way down.
2: Basically. So so he had hoes and all area codes? He did. Hoes and all area codes. He did
1: indeed. He was the ludicrous of his day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for getting that. Thank you. Yes. There are several independent sources of evidence that indicate Sickert was also in France between August and October of 1888. Well, Cornwell admits to a single letter written by Sickert from France during the autumn of 1888. While that letter has no specific date on it, it's still during the fall when these murders were happening.
0: So I'm going to write this book saying that this is definitely who did it but I'm going to leave this little bit of evidence in there that proves...
1: But there is literally, like, so many ways to pick this apart. Like, picked apart. So with flimsy of forensic evidence that would never hold up today in a court of law, it's safe to say that it's likely Sickert was not Jack the Ripper. Was he weird and eccentric like many artists? Yes, but that does seem pretty thin ground for an accusation. And it seems a pretty convincing case for Maybrick so far, and a flimsy one for Sickert, but is this still assuming that the killer was a man? What if, as some amateur detectives and ripperologists have pointed out, the killer was, in fact, a woman?
2: Uh, Well, yes, it's 2019, and a woman can be anything. A race car driver, an astronaut, a bloodthirsty demon that feeds on your flesh and washes it down with your tears. Me! (laughs) Funny, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or a podcast host. (laughs) (laughs) Or
2: that. That's true, too. The Jack the Ripper murders did not occur in 2019, though, obviously. But even in the late 1800s, women could be more than just cooks, maids, alcoholics, prostitutes. Although so far we've been hitting it on all cylinders with that one. Yeah. (laughs) They could also be Jack the Ripper, at least according to Inspector Aberline. Inspector Aberline first introduced the idea of Jill the Ripper to his mentor, Dr. Thomas Dutton, after Mary Kelly's horrific death. His theory was based on a testimony made by one Caroline Maxwell. According to official records, Mary Kelly's time of death was somewhere between 3.30 and 4 a.m. on November 9, 1888. This was based on her body temperature, the rigidity of her body, and the majority of the testimony received from those who saw or heard her. Caroline Maxwell, however, claims to have seen Mary Kelly twice, several hours after doctors believed she had already died. The first sighting was between 8 and 8.30 in the morning in front of Miller's Court, looking quite ill. She was quite sure of the time of day because her husband returned home around 8 a.m. each day. The second sighting was an hour later when Caroline Maxwell saw Mary Kelly speaking with a man outside of the Britannia Public House, wearing a, quote, dark shirt, velvet bodice, and a maroon-colored shawl. He fancy she is
1: <laughs> oh it was she wearing oh, that oh she, she was
0: wearing she fancy. oh she fancy some Lestat style
1: right?
2: <laughs> she also states that she remembered Mary Kelly wearing the exact same shawl before Inspector Aberline had no reason to distrust Caroline Maxwell and throughout questioning she never changed her testimony this led Aberline to believe that the murderer was actually a woman hence Jill the Ripper
0: because they're clever
2: yes <laughs> who dressed in Mary Kelly's clothes, which is why Caroline Maxwell claimed to have seen her twice after she was declared dead by doctors. Because, you
1: know, no one else would ever wear a maroon shawl. No, No. never.
2: Um, Plus, you know what they say. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack had his carotid cut about six inches deep. Jill pushed his dead corpse down the hill, and his entrails came tumbling after. That's how I remember it going. That's how I remember it, too.
1: Do what, y'all, you remember so- else, yeah, y'all remember something else? Yeah, do y'all remember something else? Did you learn a different nursery rhyme? There yeah, was an alternate exactly to that story? Yeah,
2: Dutton was not convinced of his mentee's theory. However, he said if it were true, he had believed Jill to have been a midwife. The theory of Jill the Ripper was never fully explored until William Stewart came along with his book, Jack the Ripper, A New Theory. Which, uh, I, I would have named
0: it something a little different, and what would you have called it? from jacking off to jilling off the story of
2: jill the ripper oh god (laughs) we haven't even got to the jacking off friends no just you wait oh
0: this is only just you know the tip of the iceberg just the tip
2: just the tip (laughs) jesus christ why did i agree to this podcast i don't know (laughs) in his book he looked at four key questions to narrow down who jill the ripper could be the first what sort of person was it that can move about at night without arousing suspicions A midwife wouldn't be suspected of anything walking the streets of London at night because babies come whenever they want. Little shits.
1: Like they own the joint. (laughs)
2: Like they pay rent.
1: (laughs) Fuck you, baby. You're
2: not
0: even getting your deposit back. You done wrecked me from the inside out.
2: Plus, I spent it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Plus, it's gone. I spent it.
2: (laughs) Uh, He also theorized that she could have been an abortionist, uh, but more on this in a minute. The second question was who could walk around the streets with bloodstained clothing and again not arouse any suspicions? Again, a midwife or an abortionist could easily explain that they had just delivered a baby or completed an abortion and were on the way home to clean up. 3. Who would have the elementary knowledge and skill to have committed the mutilations? Again, pretty obvious. And 4. Who could have been found by the body and yet given a satisfactory alibi for being there? A midwife could say that they died during labor or during the procedure. However, one big problem with this is the mutilation of the body. If they were found by the corpse, what would Jill have said? Oh, well, you see here, my hand slipped from all the way down here, (laughs) and I sliced six inches deep into her carotid, and then her breasts, and her thighs, and her intestines. Oops. Sorry.
1: That's a big slip.
0: Right? <laughs> That's a pretty big problem. She sneezed. She sneezed and
2: went, she- oh, Where's God. Oh, no, oh,
0: oh, look what I keep doing. Oh, goodness. No.
1: Such a clumsy oaf I am. Oh, the baby gee. started
2: crawling upward. I had to cut it out.
1: <laughs> it tried to tunnel up. I don't know what to do in that situation.
2: Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord.
0: It was, help me, goo goo gaga. <laughs>
2: This theory banks on the fact that Mary Kelly was three months pregnant at the time of her death, with the assumption that she was going to abort the baby, as she didn't have the funds to care for herself, let alone a child. Then, she was murdered by the abortionist. Which solves both problems, right? However, (laughs) there's no evidence that any of the other victims were pregnant. Stewart also believed that the mutilations and removal of organs were from a killer who quote held a psychological fascination and horror for all women, and as a result, physiological reactions took place among women and in places remote from the scenes of the murders, and that they were actually a way to direct attention away from her. But who was Jill the Ripper? Stewart believed it could have been Miss Mary Percy. Percy had stabbed her lover's wife and child to death and then cut their throats quote later wheeling the bodies into a secluded street
1: just bodies in a wheelbarrow yes
0: (laughs) nothing to see here nothing to see
1: here taking out me garbage (laughs) taking out me garbage
0: nothing to see don't touch me (laughs) don't touch me don't look at me this ain't shit you're next (laughs) she points at him you're next (laughs) you better keep your mouth shut
2: Because of the savageness of the killings and the public dump sites, Percy's modus operandi was very similar to that of Jill the Ripper. It's an interesting theory, but to believe it, it is another story. There's very little evidence, much of which is very weak, relying on the killer being bloodstained and for the victims to be pregnant, which, since many of them were alcoholics, it's highly unlikely that they were.
1: Well, and plus, most of the eyewitness testimony is that it was a man right mm-hmm. they were seen the man
0: nobody said it, it looked slightly feminine yeah <laughs> or it was a really manly
2: woman I don't
1: know maybe it was a woman in drag hey she's dressed as a guy but then again like that kind of shoots a hole in your whole in the whole theory of like well a woman could right, walk around clothes. unsuspected yeah
2: mm-hmm. um, but you know who knows maybe somebody already did ha- did solve the case with DNA evidence or maybe we're jumping to conclusions jump with us it's fun And all the popular kids are doing it. I just wanted to be popular. Jump
0: with us. Come jump with us. Forever and And ever and ever. ever. ever.
2: (laughs) So, here's Lauren presenting the case for and against suspect Aaron Kosminski.
0: This one gets fun. So, Aaron Kosminski was a Polish Jew who immigrated to England in the 1800s. At the time of the murders, he was a barber and hairdresser in Whitechapel. (laughs) However... He only worked on occasion which was attributed to his deteriorating mental condition. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine just that coming at you? Let me cut scissors. your hair! <laughs> no, no, please, no. Here, just just take the money. You, careful, shame! No! <laughs> no, please, No! Please, please. I'm throwing it out. I'm throwing it out.
1: How do I leave the way I came? Okay, good.
0: Okay, bye. Here, no, I'll still pay you, though. Just please don't follow me. Don't follow me home. I think I'd like to keep it long, thanks.
2: Would you like a trim? No,
0: no, please. please.
2: I could get those dead ends for you. Oh, my God. (laughs) I could get those dead ends for you. Get away
1: from Uh, me, you lazy-eyed psycho.
0: Hug, hug. (laughs) Hug. So, he alternated living with his sisters, and it was determined that his sisters all played a role in taking care of him. In 1891, Kosminski allegedly threatened one of his sisters with a knife, which is not... A nice thing to do to somebody who's taking care of your rude. crazy ass. Rude. First of all,
2: rude. First
0: of all, rude. <laughs> and it landed him in Colney in Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum, where love- he remained for the next three years. <laughs>
1: Sorry. I love that there's the name Hatch in there because all I'm picturing is just the hatch, and that's where they just put the crazy people in. They just like pitch them in like a picnic basket.
0: Got another
2: one for the hatch. <laughs> open,
1: open the hatch, and he goes <laughs> down
2: the hatch, Mary Poppins. <laughs> Which, ironically, or maybe not so ironically enough, uh, one of my future suspects that I discussed was also in Colney Hatch uh, Institution. Oh, they threw Ooh. him
1: down the hatch, too. Down the hatch! <laughs> down the hatch with they both did. of them. <laughs> both of you crazy. Just, like, wrapped up in a straight jacket. They just toss him in the hole.
0: <laughs> <laughs> He'll stay in there until you rot. <laughs> <laughs> so case notes mention that kosminski had been mentally ill since 1885 which does place him at the perfect time to have possibly committed the Whitechapel murders of 1888 the recorded cause of his insanity okay oh god okay i need to prepare arsenic? you guys for just a second <laughs> it's not arsenic oh. not this time are you prepared okay the recorded cause of his insanity was listed as self-abuse
2: that's masturbation, folks. That's
0: masturbation. He folks. was just
1: pulling the padge all day long.
0: Wait, he was jacking the ripper
1: off.
2: <laughs> God damn which, that. which, which? One of my guys later on also <laughs> was pointed out to be self-abusing and oh, masturbating. No. They um, did it together. They did. Oh, Do you think they had? Oh, oh God, I a circle like... jack. <laughs> Get
0: out. A circle jack. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> okay, so.
1: This is. Sidzik, so like, aren't you glad you guys don't pay for this podcast? <laughs>
0: aren't you glad?
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> One other thing about him he was paranoid about people feeding him and only got by off of eating scraps that people had thrown away. So he was very emaciated and by 1919 weighed only 96 pounds. He died in March of nineteen nineteen from a gangrene infection in his leg. Really? It wasn't from
1: rubbing the skin off too much.
0: <laughs> or from, you know, not or, eating. Are yeah. we sure it was his leg? <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought for sure it would have been malnourishment
2: or not eating. But no, gangrene's what got him. Cornwall got him mixed up. He was the one that had the fish jail on his penis. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there we go. Ended up with one, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Ended up with one for damn sure. It's from too much friction. <laughs> jacking off (laughs) (laughs) penis jokes (laughs) dick jokes
0: sir melville mcnaughton the assistant chief constable of the london metropolitan police had listed kosminski as a suspect in 1894 he stated that his reasons for suspecting kosminski were because he had a hatred towards women and homicidal tendencies that'll do it i think that's pretty much checking all the boxes pretty much
1: ticks all the boxes there (laughs) right
0: so MacNaughton was not the only one who thought the murderer was Kosminski. Both Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson and Chief Inspector Donald Swanson named Kosminski as their primary suspect. But, here's where things get just a tiny bit strange. As if jacking off wasn't a tiny bit strange. Which he did on street
1: corners <laughs> to make money. Did on the street
0: corner. <laughs> Look what I can do! <laughs> oh, it's in my eye! <laughs> you know what, that was worth a shilling yeah. here. That was fun to It wasn't watch. what
1: was promised, but was entertaining. <laughs>
0: so the weird thing is they never gave a first name they all simply said a polish jew by the name of kosminski he just, he just
1: happened to fit the bill he
0: just Pretty happened much. some crazy guy
1: <laughs> some crazy guy that stands and jerks off on the corner
2: <laughs> and, jack- <laughs> and can and I- mean jacks off <laughs> into his own he face. jacked the rippers <laughs> off on he the corner the rippers off on the corner <laughs> Look, maybe Glock this was all Daniel. a big un- misunderstanding I, wait no i got jack it
0: he was actually saying i'm jacking off not i'm jack the ripper no. I, right right, right, right. He,
1: maybe see he was crazy and all so maybe he was standing on the corner masturbating with knives <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god
1: ah! Screaming the entire time. Good lord, y'all.
0: It hurts so good. Give me your money. Please give me your money. Oh god, I, I would give him money so he stops. Please
1: don't, sir. Here's all my money. But Please. what happens when he
0: runs out of penis? Just shaves it down like a pencil. Yeah. In Sir Robert Anderson's memoirs, he wrote that Kosminski had been taken to Colney Hatch Asylum and died shortly afterwards. However, Aaron Kosminski did not die until 1919. Also, Aaron Kosminski was described as non-threatening while in the asylum, and he preferred to speak Yiddish, suggesting his English was subpar, which means he most likely would have had a hard time luring unsuspecting English-speaking victims into a dark alley. Unless it was you want to see me jack off (laughs) (laughs) this i gotta
1: see all right you want to see me
2: jack the ripper (laughs) do
1: you want to see me jack the Ripper? i don't know what that means but this
0: i'm 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 intrigued uh one other thing that's worth pointing out is that the murders concluded in 1888 while kosminski was not taken to the asylum until 1891 so you would think he'd just continue right more recently in 2014, a historical DNA expert named Yari Luhalainen, right? Kazunte. <laughs> Yari Luhalanen was asked by British author Russell Edwards to study the shawl that had come from the crime scene where Catherine Eddowes was slain. He stated that he extracted mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondria is the powerhouse of the no. cell. <laughs> <laughs> that matched the female line descendants of Edos, as well as mitochondrial DNA that matched descendants from Kosmi- Kosminski's Kosminsky's sister. The author was convinced and named Kosminsky as the murderer in his book, appropriately titled Naming Jack the Ripper. They should have just hired
2: me. <laughs> <laughs> really, you we could have made title. better titles. Yeah. I need
0: I need to time travel so that I can go back and give my whole from jacking off to jilling off. (laughs) The story of Jack the Ripper. He'd have been like, how did you get in my house? How did you get in my house and why aren't you dead yet? (laughs) Also, what are you wearing? (laughs) He had been inspired by the movie adaptation of Alan Moore's graphic novel From Hell and bought the shawl at an auction to have it analyzed. After the analysis, he claimed that the murderer was 100% undoubtedly Kosminski. However... Due to a typing error, Count- the entire, his chickens. <laughs> the
2: entire study did not was hatch.
0: dismissed.
2: They did not call me Not hatch. a single no. chicken.
0: Not a single chicken. It was a snake. <laughs> Lou helenen had claimed that the DNA from Edo's descendant was a rare sequence variation known as 314.1c. However, what he had meant to say was... 315.1c which is not only less rare but is actually present in 99% of the sequences in the MPOP database rather than only being found in 1 in 290,000 people as the book had claimed Well, those typos will get you man I mean they definitely will It's also been said that the shawl was not listed among Edo's belongings by the police and that the shawl at the point had been, or sorry, that the shawl at that point had been handled by multiple people who could have had the same DNA profile. Despite all of the criticism, Lou Helenen continues to defend his work and his findings. Well. <laughs> the study is ongoing even to this day, leading this ghoul babe to believe a true answer is almost within our grasp.
1: That could be. Very much could be. So we have a lot of suspects in this one. And how do we get to the bottom of cases and learn the facts about a wide variety of suspects? Well, good question, spooky listeners. With books. Lots of books. But between baying at the moon, sacrificing tributes to the shadow people, and collecting skulls for the skull throne, however do we find the time? That's easy. Audiobooks. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering listeners a free book. With a 30-day trial membership, just go to audibletrial.com slash thisspookyshow and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's just that easy. (laughs) With titles like They All Love Jack, Busting the Ripper by Bruce Robinson, and The Complete Jack the Ripper by Donald Rumbelow available, Audible makes it easy for the ghoul babes to get timely research done on a busy sacrificial schedule alt the click of a button Mm -hmm.
0: that's handy right (laughs) any title any
1: subject your first one is free to download your free audiobook today go to audibletrial.com slash this spooky show again that's audibletrial.com slash this spooky show for your free audiobook it's free go get it
2: go get it what are you waiting for go go Go. get it boy go get it
1: (laughs) so now back to the suspects we do hope that you kept your tinfoil hats handy after the last episode that we needed them for we done told you listeners it's not the last you'll see of these trust me because while this next theory is a popular one on the internet, it may require you to pop on that shiny cap while you listen to the Royal Conspiracy Theory. C. Everybody lo- loves a good conspiracy theory, especially the internets.
0: Interwebs. The
1: interwebs, eh? <laughs> A, <laughs> So it should be no surprise that there exists a pretty big one out there in the case of Jack the Ripper known as the Royal Conspiracy, and it's every bit as fancy as it sounds. It
0: do sound fancy.
1: Prince Albert Victor Christian Edward, known to Eddie as his friends... <laughs> <laughs> Who was close enough to a prince to call him Eddie? Without right? getting beheaded. Exactly.
0: I, no.
1: <laughs> he is undoubtedly one of the most famous suspects in the Ripper case, figuring as the central suspect in no less than three major theories. But we'll only talk about one today. Eddie was born in 1864 to Prince Albert Edward, known as Bertie. And it was son to Queen Victoria. Again. Again, who are calling these people this? (laughs) It's royal family. It's like kind of protocol to not call them something so informal.
0: Off with their heads.
1: (laughs) Bertie would later become King Edward VII after his mother's death in 1902. By most reports, Eddie was a slow child and grew up to be a rather dull adult. Quote, Even his nearest and dearest, who were naturally bent on making the best of poor Prince Eddie, could not bring themselves to use more positive terms.
0: Savage.
1: Prince Eddie was certainly dear and good, kind and considerate. He was also backward and utterly listless. (laughs) He was self indulgent and not punctual. He had been given no proper education, and as a result, he was interested in nothing.
0: Damn. (laughs)
1: He was as heedless and as aimless as a gleaming goldfish in a crystal bowl. End quote.
0: (laughs) He was a nice guy, but he was dumb as a box of rocks. Yeah. And, and, you know, he he meant well, but God,
2: was he just dull. That was
1: the most nice way of saying, what a fucking dumbass I've ever heard.
2: (laughs) I don't know what's more savage, that description of Eddie or the Jack the Ripper murders. Ooh. I see what you did there. I see you. (laughs) (laughs) There were unconfirmed
1: rumors that Eddie was mildly retarded, and he required a tutor while at Cambridge, and was also partially deaf, owed to inbreeding, which... Duh, royal family oh, yeah. yep and genetic hearing problems he also had an unusually long and thin neck which required him to wear long starched collars and led him to receiving the nickname collars and cuffs i've heard meaner that's
2: still I'm pretty imagine a giraffe I know, that a giraffe
1: problem. in a suit yeah, yeah. Problem.
0: he wasn't really human he was a giraffe he was a and giraffe. that's why he was like god this human's really dull <laughs>
1: It's, he just eats leaves all day. We don't know why. <laughs> he has
0: no interest whatsoever. Other,
1: other than acacia trees, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally gets spooked when the cats come in the house. <laughs> <laughs> During the murders, Eddie was never named officially as a suspect. People may not have even considered it, or were maybe too afraid of being off with the old-headed by the royal family.
0: That's what we mentioned (laughs) earlier.
1: (laughs) It wasn't until much later that the theory around Eddie and the royal conspiracy were officially put forth. Other theories abound about Eddie himself being the killer, driven to madness by syphilis and eventually dying in a private mental hospital, but these pale in comparison to the true wackiness of the conspiracy itself. In 1973, the BBC program Jack the Ripper aired. The story goes that the producers of the program were told to contact a man named Sickert, familiar name? We know him. Who knew about a secret marriage between Eddie and a poor Catholic girl named Alice Mary Crook. The man, Joseph Sickert, was none other than the son of painter and also Ripper suspect, Walter Sickert. As Joseph tells it, heard from his father, Sickert had lived in the East End during the time of the murders and was supposedly a close friend of the royal family. Princess Alex asked Sickert to take Eddie under his wing and keep watch over him. Sickert eventually introduced Eddie to Annie Crook, a poor girl who worked in one of the local shops on Cleveland Street. Soon, Annie fell pregnant by the prince, and they were living a happy, normal life with their daughter until Queen Victoria learned of her grandson's indiscretion and demanded that the situation be handled. Not only was Crook a commoner, but a Catholic as well, and a belief that there may be a Catholic heir to the throne would spark a revolution. She can't be having that. The Queen gave the matter to the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, to handle, and he, in turn, went to Sir William Gull, Eddie's private physician. A daring raid was performed on the Cleveland Street home. Eddie was dragged away, and Annie was sent to one of Gull's hospitals, where Gull performed experiments on her to erase her memory and drive her insane.
0: This is some, like, comic book shit. Right? (laughs) Yeah.
2: she They're, then becomes a super villain yeah
1: i guess so They're, i would
2: too shit <laughs>
0: their
1: child however escaped unharmed with her nanny mary kelly Ooh,
2: okay kelly it's kelly thickens.
1: yes the plot gets thick it's a thick plot
2: three c's
1: thick plot kelly had been a co-worker of annie's as well as one of sickert's models knowing that the game was afoot kelly hid the child with nuns and fled into the east end eventually she told this story to several of her cronies nichols stride and chapman and they decided to blackmail the government okay wow when they needed money to pay local protection thugs go when, big or go right? home right? seriously when lord salisbury learned of the threat he called on Gull once more hold on this is about to go into crazy town
2: you I'm mean bad. it wasn't already <laughs> oh it's it
1: more so off the end Gull invented an elaborate scheme to silence the women based on Masonic rituals.
0: Uh...
1: Enlisting the help of a coachman, John Netley, he created Jack the Ripper as a symbol of Freemasonry.
0: This is the original Guy Fawkes, yeah, basically. Yeah, Like, in a way.
1: Sir Robert Anderson, who we heard about earlier, was also enlisted to assist in covering up the crimes and acting as a lookout during the murders. Eddowes, Sickert said, was a mistake, since she often went by the alias Mary Kelly, and it was a simple case of mistaken identity whoopsies <laughs> the real mary kelly was found at last and finally silenced the conspiracy eventually closed in on itself and chose montague john Druitt, who was also another ripper suspect as a scapegoat to take the fall and as sickert implied Druitt was murdered for it rather than committing suicide as the papers claimed the daughter of eddie and his catholic lover alice grew up and by a series of odd twists and turns get this y'all eventually married walter sickert and gave birth to his son joseph who conveyed the tale
2: Oh, Lord.
1: (laughs) Wow. Yeah, this one's just a little bashed. That one's just like a breakneck, like, almost snapped my neck trying to follow the twists on this one. I
0: have whiplash, (laughs) and I'm just sitting here. A couple
1: problems, though. There are no birth records or marriage records existent that list Eddie as Annie Crook's husband or Alice's father. In fact, there is no hard evidence whatsoever linking Cleveland Street, Crook, or Sickard. Perhaps more importantly, examinations of court and royal records reveal that Eddie wasn't even in London around the time of the murder or the murder dates. So, This one's a bit out there, we warned you, but it's a fun one if you're into the big budget sort of TV show twists that are so popular amongst internet fan theories. From a theory that is popular on the internet to a man we know, well, almost nothing really for sure about, Jade has the case laid out for our next suspect in our lineup, Carl Fagenbaum.
2: Yes. Carl Ferdinand Fagenbaum was born in 1894, and that's about the only information that has been confirmed. Fagenbaum claimed he was born in Karlsruhe, a city in South Germany close to the French border, and then later said he was born in Kapitalheim, which is not a city. sounds made it up. It sounds
1: 100% made up.
0: <laughs> where, where were you born? Kapital...
1: Uh, Heim.
0: Heim? Heim. That yeah. sounds right. Yeah, yeah, German.
1: That's right, I'm German. Yeah. Yeah, German as can be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Uh, even his real name is uncertain. Carl Fagenbaum was also known as Carl Zahn, Carl Zahm, Anton Zahn, Anton Zahn, Carl Stroban, and John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. That's my name too! Oh my goodness! You know, whenever he went out, the people always shout, Oh, murder! <laughs>
1: that's deeply ingrained (laughs) oh yeah that's not going anywhere
2: you're welcome (laughs) in addition to the confusion over his name and his birthplace we're also unsure whether he was ever married or if he ever had children he is said to have had two sisters and one brother that he claimed lived in germany but then later said he had a brother who lived in brooklyn who may or may not have been the one from germany He was also a sailor for some or most of his life, but he stopped between 1891 and 1892 when he came to the U.S. However, there's no record of him entering the U.S., legally at least, so it's very likely that he sailed to the U.S., walked off his boat, and said, "Uh, I'm gonna stay. Fuck it. (laughs) Whatever. My my
0: journey ends here. Fuck your rules. (laughs) (laughs) I won't do what you tell me. (laughs)
2: His time in the U.S. between 1890 and September 1st, 1894 is also unclear. I know, I know. Real shocker there.
1: Mm -hmm. He's a man of mystery, this one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He claimed that he was a gardener on Long Island and then later claimed to be a florist. All that is really known is that he worked with plants in some capacity off and on as he traveled the U.S., his own brother even said, quote, I saw and knew so little of him that I do not know where he went in the last few years. He was all over the West and traveled a great deal. So why are we talking about this man? Because of a little known thing called murder. Oh, murder. Murder. Karl Fagenbaum was convicted and found guilty of the murder of Juliana Hoffman and sentenced to an execution via electric chair. Let's dive into this story, shall we? Juliana Hoffman was a 56-year-old widow who lived with her 16-year-old son, Michael, in two rooms, the front room, which overlooked the street, and the back, which overlooked the yard, above a store on 544 East 6th Street. The mother and son came to the U.S. from Budapest, Hungary in 1892 and lived off Michael's wages. Needing the extra money, they decided to rent out their furnished back room. Unfortunately, their first and last lodger was none other than Carl Fagenbaum. He had been doing odd jobs and sleeping on the park benches prior to answering Hoffman's ad on Wednesday, August 29th. He had no money, but said that he had been promised a job at a florist shop and would be able to pay rent, which was $1 a week and $0.08 cents a day for breakfast. Oh, you imagine that, right? Ugh. As soon as he was paid on Saturday, Hoffman trusted him and allowed him to stay
1: big mistake
2: yeah
0: astronomical even poor woman
1: ginormagantuan
2: on august 31st juliana went to an unlocked closet and withdrew some money from a small change purse kept there to purchase bread for supper once she took the money she replaced the purse and closed the door this mundane fact will become relevant later i promise you
0: promise i promise you pinky swear pinky pinky promise okay good okay that's three times you promise
2: At around 10 p.m., everyone went to bed. Fagenbaum retired to his room, and Juliana and Michael settled in their spots at the front of the house by the windows. Sometime after midnight, Michael awakens to a scream. He saw his mom sitting up in bed and Fagenbaum standing over her with a long carving knife. Michael kicked him, then attempted to attack him from behind. However, Fagenbaum turned on him with the knife, forcing Michael to flee for his life. Escaping out the window and onto the cornice over the shop's front. As he screamed for help, Fagenbaum returned his attention to the older Hoffman and stabbed her in the left side of her neck, drawing the knife forward and to the right some six inches, severing her jugular vein. After killing Juliana, Fagenbaum fled out the back window and climbed down to the yard where the alleyway met the street. Michael, atop the cornice, yelled, Murder! Police! Help! Police! Murder!
1: (laughs) Most foul? Most foul. foul. Is there any other
2: kind? (laughs) (laughs) Crouch. This all got the attention of a local beat cop and and neighbors who arrived just as Fagenbaum emerged from the alleyway with no jacket, shoes, or hat. He tried to run, but was caught, and the knife was found. The cop brought Fagenbaum up to the apartment, perhaps to allow Juliana to ID her attacker. Unfortunately, she was dead or almost dead.
1: How did that work out? Where it's like, was this the man who stabbed you?
2: <laughs> I, I don't understand. One gurgle for yes. <laughs> that
0: that's that,
2: that, that there was like three gurgles. I don't know. What does that mean? Was that a maybe? I don't. <laughs> that's
0: bubbling. What you're doing there? It's useless. Worst <laughs> witness ever. ever. <laughs>
2: However, Michael was alive and was able to ID him as well as pointed out that the closet where his mother's purse had been kept was open, which it was closed when they went to bed, which gave Fagenbaum a motive for killing the woman. Told you that closet detail would be important later. You uh, did. You did. I keep my promises. When he was brought before the court, Fagenbaum asserted that it was not him, but his friend, Jacob Weibel, who had killed the widow. He said he met Weibel while tramping through the countryside, and then they traveled together, and he would sneak in to sleep in the room Faginbaum was renting from the Hoffmans. Fortunately, no one believed Faginbaum's bullshit, and he was found guilty during his trial based on the evidence and sentenced to death.
0: was well, just a tramp. It wasn't me, it was
2: a one-armed man. <laughs> no, it wasn't me. Don't hit me. Don't hit me. <laughs> his lawyers, in a last-ditch effort to save his life, tried to plead insanity, but after... Being examined and declared sane by Dr. Carlos McDonald on March 19, 1896, Carl Fegebaum was executed in April on uh, the 26th, 1896. That was
1: a quick turnaround for an execution. Yes. Right. He was geez. examined in March and was executed in April. <laughs> they were done. Fine. They, were, they like, had taken too long. They you're like, sane. This is taking too like, long. Yeah, you're fine, but you won't be. <laughs> <laughs> but not for long. <laughs>
2: now i know what you're thinking why do we care about this man because he was in new york and jack the ripper was active in london well after his execution one of his lawyers william s lawton declared quote i believe that carl fagenbaum whom you have just seen put to death in the electric chair can easily be connected with the jack the ripper murders in Whitechapel, london he believed this because fagenbaum had allegedly confessed to him quote I have for years suffered from a singular disease, which induces an all-absorbing passion. This passion manifests itself in a desire to kill and mutilate every woman who falls in my way. At such times, I am unable to control myself.
0: Which means you must be Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Right? <laughs> There's no other logical explanation. None. You must be Jack the Ripper.
2: Yeah, which Lawton also said that when he looked up the dates of the London murders and asked Carl if he was in the city from one date to the next, Carl said, yeah, and then went silent, <laughs> ah, gosh, hey,
1: I already told you, <sighs>
0: and then nothing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> he also looked into Fagenbaum's supposed record and gathered all gathered that he had traveled all over the U.S. and Europe at a time when several Ripper-like murders were reported in those same locations. Trevor Marriott, author of Jack the Ripper, the 21st Century Investigation, went a step further and took a look at the ship records, believing the killer to have been a merchant seaman.
0: We're, we're, we're adults. adults.
1: <laughs> we, we are promise. adults and we are when, professionals. What do you think?
2: We know what you think. <laughs> you think
1: women and seamen don't mix.
2: <laughs> we know what you think. In all of his research, he found a list of Ripper-like murders that occurred throughout Europe and at and the U.S. at a time when Fagenbaum was still living in Germany and sailing between Europe and North America. Because remember, he was a sailor. Yes. Mm -hmm. Many of these murders included the dismemberment and mutilation of prostitutes. He also found that after Fagenbaum was executed, the Ripper-like murders around the world stopped. Is Fagenbaum the Ripper? It's hard to say. Both Lawton and Marriott present a good case. However, there are flaws in their theories. First, Lawton, he brought up this confession at a most opportune time when he was trying to secure an insanity defense for Carl. And, if he really did feel like his client was Jack the Ripper, why did he wait so long to say anything? Especially when the alleged killer wasn't alive to confirm or deny details or events. How convenient. Very convenient. Munchausen syndrome by proxy, Mm -hmm. motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) And with Marriott's theory, the murder of Lottie Morgan, which was kind of what he had based things on, um, she was a prostitute who was murdered in Hurley, Wisconsin. It wasn't actually related to Fagenbaum at all. Um, it was because it was actually tied to a bank robbery, and she was murdered before she could testify at the trials of the two men who were accused of the robbery. Plus, Fagenbaum's English wasn't great. Save from, for the From Hell letter, Jack the Ripper seemed to have a masterful grip on the English language which draws more doubt into this theory that he could be the Jack the Ripper. Yeah. The
0: From hell letter, he was just gone. He was sauced. Yeah. He was absolutely. Out of his mind.
2: He was saucy Jackie. He was. <laughs> <laughs> so it's highly unlikely that this German sailor turned gardener, turned florist, was old saucy Jack, given the evidence. But perhaps one of our other suspects could be the culprit. Perhaps even an overzealous doctor bent on studying female anatomy up close and personal. Here's Lauren with the case for and against Sir John Williams.
0: Why, thank you, Jade. So, first of all, John Williams was born on November 6th, 1840. Wait a minute. Hold up. That
2: doesn't <laughs> work. Wait a uh, minute. That's not how
0: math works. Yeah, my my birthday is actually November 6th, so he's a fellow Scorpio. So, I, I automatically feel a connection here. <laughs> He was set for a career in the church, however, he took an interest in math and science, ultimately studying medicine and becoming a surgeon. He was a witch. He's a witch! (laughs) He wasn't really a witch. You're a wizard, John Williams! I'm a what? (laughs) I'm a what? (laughs) So he had a very successful career in London, becoming well known as a doctor, surgeon, and even a teacher. He was a model citizen, and did everything he could to help people. Sounds like an absolutely amazing human being. Mm -hmm. So why are we accusing him of being Jack the Ripper? Why? Because he's an amazing human being. (laughs) Because he's an amazing human being, and that's apparently what amazing human beings deserve. I'm not going to lie. This whole theory doesn't hold any water. But the reason I mention it is because it is kind of an interesting theory, and it does deserve some mention. So in 2005, which is way, way later in the future. Yeah, (laughs) jeez. A relative of Sir John Williams named Tony Williams wrote a book called Uncle Jack, where he claims that Sir John Williams was actually the sadistic Jack the Ripper. Because he went by Uncle because Jack. Because he went by Jack. Because he just happened to go by Uncle wow, Jack, I guess. Wow, such evidence. Oh, wow, much evidence. Wow. Very, very, very accusatory. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Such concrete. <laughs> <laughs> he had a theory that William's wife, Mary Elizabeth Ann, was infertile and seeking treatment for her infertility, he stalked and murdered women of a similar age to his wife in order to study their reproductive organs. What? Which, how does that even work?
1: Like, what was he like grinding them up and putting them in her morning porridge to hope that it would work? <laughs>
0: like, hey, I got you a new one.
1: <laughs> Maybe this one'll work this time.
0: <laughs> Hold still. <laughs> Hold still. I have to I have to implant this. <laughs> like, think warm thoughts, dear, because this is mighty cold. Imagine her just walking around the supermarket and then just suddenly <laughs> <boom>. <laughs> out falls a uterus that's not even hers. Clearly. She sidestepping. She just looks
1: around real quick and just kicks it under the bin of peas. <laughs>
0: just sidesteps it oh, oh no, no nobody noticed that so, very oh, like someone seemed to drop this here <laughs> <laughs> Does this belong to anybody that was awful <laughs> <laughs> tony williams states that the evidence he has against his ancestor is as follows in sir john williams belongings in the collection of the national library of wales there was a knife and three slides containing animal matter There's also a notebook listing that Sir John had performed an abortion on Ripper victim Mary Ann Nichols in 1885. Now, that certainly places him in the correct setting. In my personal opinion, the so-called evidence against Sir John Williams is circumstantial at best. First of all, there's nothing particularly strange about a surgeon having a knife amongst his belongings.
2: no it'd be be more strange if he he didn't
0: yeah exactly not to just i'm gonna rip you open with my bare hands
1: with my my mind
0: (laughs) your mind That, that like you said it's stranger for him not to have a knife and also while he may have worked in an infirmary that some of the rippers victims attended that doesn't prove he ever killed anyone or maybe i'm just biased maybe i'm just trying to protect a fellow november 6th scorpio This is why you picked
1: him to begin with. This
0: is why I picked him. (laughs) And his name. One of my favorite composers. True. Not the same person. Not the same person. (laughs) We may never find out. Could a deranged scientist have been responsible for the killings? Mad scientists are responsible for a lot of ill if if we are to believe science fiction stories and movies. But what about someone close to the victims? Someone who even lived with one of them? An obsessed lover turned killer perhaps? Vivian will now present the case for Joseph Barnett.
1: Barnett was the roommate, as you will remember, of fifth and final Ripper victim Mary Kelly. While they were solely roommates, Barnett would often refer to Kelly as his wife, which could implicate shades of jealousy, especially when Kelly returned to the streets to work as a prostitute after Barnett lost his job around July 1888. On October 30th, Barnett and Kelly had a fight at 13 Miller's Court, during which a window is broken, and Joseph leaves the home to take up a new lodging in Bishopsgate. It is said that the quarrel between the two occurred because Kelly was allowing several prostitutes into the home to share their lodgings, which I guess didn't sit too no. too well with no, that, him. That
0: wouldn't sit well with me either. Like, I come home, prostitutes. I go out there on the street, prostitutes. prostitutes. <laughs> Everywhere I look, Wall-to-wall prostitute. prostitutes. prostitutes. Always prostitutes. prostitutes.
1: Between November 1st and through the 8th, Barnett visits Kelly often at Miller's Court, giving her money and seemed to be on friendly terms with her. On November 9th, Kelly is found murdered at 13 Miller's Court. That escalated. Yeah, that escalated (laughs) quickly. That got out of hand fast. (laughs) On the whole... Barnett actually does match the description of the Ripper given by many eyewitnesses. He was 30 years old and of medium build. He had a fair complexion and a mustache, blue eyes, and was around 5'7". He also likely had a speech impediment called echolalia, which caused him to repeat the last words spoken to him when replying to a question. Which is like, like a minor bird? <laughs> like, like a parrot? I don't
0: know. What? <laughs> Did I kill her? Did ah! I kill her? Kill her? Kill her?
1: <laughs> 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 Barnett also well fits the FBI psychological profile of the Ripper done in 1986, which mentions that the killer would have had a passive or absent father. Barnett's father was dead. That the killer had a profession in which he could legally experience his destructive tendencies. As a fish porter, he would have had plenty of experience in deboning and gutting fish. Poor
0: fishies. Poor fishies. <laughs>
1: The Ripper ceased killing, according to the profile, because he was either arrested or felt himself close to being discovered as the killer. Barnett was interviewed for four hours after the Kelly murder, but was not pursued further by police. And that the killer had some sort of physical defect, which was a source of anger and frustration, i.e. his speech impediment. Mm -hmm.
0: Like, I can't stop repeating things and it makes me mad. (laughs) Makes me mad. mad, Makes makes me mad. uh Makes me mad. Makes me mad. mad.
1: The prevailing theory is that Barnett was in love with Kelly and was growing tired and jealous of her prostituting herself to other men. He believed he could support her enough to keep her off the streets, and for a time that worked. But the loss of his job caused Kelly to have no recourse but to return to her old profession to make ends meet. This infuriated Barnett, and in an ill-conceived attempt to scare Kelly off the streets, Barnett raged through Whitechapel and murdered a handful of prostitutes in the fall of 1888.
0: Seems reasonable, right? Right. <laughs> seems
1: seems a rational response. i
2: keep her inside by making outside by, by making outside in blood. scary. <laughs> make outside
3: you better
1: not scary. go out and prostitute yourself. I hear somebody is killing bitches. I don't know. Like They're it's not saying. me, but you know, whatever. <laughs> it's me. I'm somebody killing bitches. <laughs> <laughs> His efforts would prove ultimately futile. Temper's between Barnett and Kelly boiled over in late October, culminating on their final fight on the thirtieth. Perhaps realizing that Kelly was determined to return to the streets and that his love for her was ultimately unrequited, Barnett murdered her with the bloody rage and fury of a scorned lover. With this final act, there was no need to kill more prostitutes, as the woman he was determined to keep off the streets was dead herself, so this is why the killing ceased after Kelly's death.
0: Sounds like the problem solved.
1: There were also ginger beer bottles found at 13 Miller's Court on November 9th, which are referenced in the Dear Boss letter.
2: Well, Interesting well well were they filled with uh
0: thick the thick red stuff the thick red stuff
1: (laughs) also kelly's door had been locked when the police arrived if you remember from the last episode they had to like chop the door open to Mm -hmm. get the door open so it had been locked Mm -hmm. um which would indicate that the murderer either had access to a key which barnett could still clearly have even after moving out or he knew where she kept one in the room
0: reasonable definitely
1: so some distinct possibilities there. There's really no argument against this one that I could find. Mm-hmm. Um, they just didn't look too far into Barnett. I guess he just didn't ping the police's radar. He was interviewed, of course, but they, uh, I guess, just didn't think him a viable suspect, so they kind of let him let him go on that one.
0: Either that, or they were just kind of like, "Well, he stopped. We yeah. know why he stopped. So you know what? Let's just we'll
1: just chalk this one up to like it's fine.
0: We'll call this one even. You
1: know,
2: let's well, call and, the whole like, thing dead. He wasn't dead. crazy. I mean. Theoretically, right. He wasn't actually like insane, and their mindset in this time is like a crazy person has right, to right. A crazy doing person this. has to be
1: doing it, and he wasn't crazy enough to fit their profile. Right. As so a they're time. like, it
2: couldn't be him. He's yeah. sane, and they really were trying to
0: point the finger at the crazies. Yeah, but <laughs> the who's ones that were thrown down the hatch? Yeah, the hatch, <laughs> down, 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 the the hatch, hatch. down the hatch with you. Down the hatch with you.
1: But who's to say that an accusation has to be based
0: on facts when
1: it can be based on good old xenophobia? Right. Every criminal court actually says that. So it has to be facts, not (laughs) xenophobia. Actually, technically. Actually, technically, yes. But let's play along and uncomfortably wade out into the waters of old-fashioned turn-of-the-century racism with suspect Hyam Hyams, as presented by Jade.
2: Like Vivian says, the accusation of Hyam Hyams Hold on. First Mm. of all. Oh, no. This name... (laughs) <laughs> this poor man what's your name hyam okay hymen why'd you do it <laughs> okay hymen <laughs> that was a period joke for anyone who you c- who couldn't tell it's a period period joke it is hey <laughs> hey. Matches <is> mine earlier <laughs> you were warned remember the beginning ah you, you have been warned, warned. <laughs> anyway the accusation of Hyman, I mean, Hyam, stunk of old century racism. Stunk. The stunk. choice of words. Hyman Stunk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hyman Stunk would be a terrible name, also. <laughs> Welcome to the stage, Hyman, Hyman Stunk.
0: stunk. <laughs> oh, that's filthy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> would you say that he looked real fish? Oh, my God. Oh, no. Please, if anybody out there
0: is listening, please help. I'm trapped in this room. (laughs) Please (laughs) help. Please help us.
2: (laughs) They love me. I swear.
3: Uh
1: (laughs) Uh-huh. Yes, (laughs) ma'am.
2: Anyway, uh, the area where the Jack the Ripper murders occurred was highly populated with Jewish immigrants, The tensions were high between Jewish and non-Jewish residents. When the Whitechapel murders began, non-Jewish residents immediately started to point the finger at Jews living in the area. In fact, their first suspect was a Jewish man, John Pizer, who had the nickname of Leather Apron. Which, fun fact about this nickname, even he didn't know why he had it.
0: (laughs) Why do they call you Leather Apron? Mm. shit if i
1: know i i don't know they call me that (laughs) they call (laughs) me
2: that wait who calls me that (laughs) (laughs) who says (laughs) uh when he was questioned about the nickname he said that he had worn a leather apron home from work but he hadn't done so for some time because he was actually out of work imagine if we did that today Hey, sweatpants, come over here. <laughs> I don't like the cut of khaki's jib.
0: Hey, cargo shorts, move your ass. How you doing there, ponytail? <laughs> Can I get your number? <laughs> Can I get your number?
2: Call back at leather
0: jacket. New White New Balance shoes with the grass stains on them, I see you. <laughs> I seen
2: it. <laughs> back to our narrative. Even though John Pizer had been cleared of the murders, everyone was still on the hunt for a Jewish culprit. People blamed the murders on real and fictional Jewish rituals and customs, and there was a wide belief that, quote, no Englishman could be responsible for such brutal and barbaric crimes. Sir Robert Anderson, the ex-assistant commissioner of London's Metropolitan Police CID, had this to say to the readers of Blackwood's magazine, quote, one did not have to be a Sherlock Holmes to discover that the criminal was a sexual maniac of a virulent type. That he was living in the immediate vicinity of the scenes of the murders and that if he was not living absolutely alone his people knew of his guilt and refused to give him up to justice during my absence abroad the police made a house-to-house search for him investigating investigating cases of every man in the district whose circumstances were such that he could go and come and get rid of his bloodstains in secret and the conclusion we came to was that he and his people were low-class Jews. And the result proved that our diagnosis was right on every point. First of
0: all, that's racist. Rude.
2: <laughs> what,
0: it proved on what point,
2: dude? Yeah. What, 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 what point was proven? Absolutely none of none. it. None. <laughs> Do you have a suspect? No. Or conviction? No. Nothing. While others, like Sir Melville McNaughton, ex-assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard CID, would name people such as Aaron Kosminski and David Cohen, theorist Mark King suspected Chaim Hyams an apparent, quote, Jewish lunatic. In 1881, Hyams was living at 29 Mitre Street, Aldgate, with his mother, three brothers, two sisters, and his brother-in-law. It was a full house. That's a lot of people.
0: <laughs> but <Ba-da-da. laughs>
1: Cue the music.
2: <laughs> and we're done. he was a fruiterer 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 he was a fruiterer i.e a fruit salesman just say you sold fruit Hyman. yeah (laughs) hymen you sold apples (laughs) calm down do do you think he sold cherries no because they were all busted (laughs) oh my god he dropped the box and they popped popped all the
0: cherries
1: damn it hymen he <laughs> popped all the cherries
0: not again yeah he also sold peaches gross gross, <laughs> gross.
2: <laughs> that's too far yeah i made a popping cherry joke but peaches too far but peaches i draw the just line disgusting <laughs> by the time the ripper murders had occurred hyam had married and had two children a son named william and a daughter named kate On December 29th, 1888, at around 6 o'clock in the morning, Hyams was sent to Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary, diagnosed with delirium tremens, a disordered state of mind usually accompanied by hallucinations and terrifying delusions brought on by severe alcoholism.
0: Just like everybody else around the time. He had the DTs.
1: (laughs) Although it's actually brought on by a withdrawal of alcohol.
0: Ah, There we go. Noteworthy i learned
1: something today i was this i was today years old when <laughs> i learned that the dt's were from drying out from alcohol not actually drinking it yeah.
0: so keep drinking hey, don't do no. this hey you won't ever you won't get
1: a hangover if you just stay drunk
0: don't do this. That's just true. saying
1: just throwing that out there
0: don't do this hack <laughs> take it home with you alcohol hack <laughs> life hacks <laughs> life hacks courtesy of the Ghoul Babes. <laughs>
2: He was discharged 13 days later. However, was readmitted April 15, 1889. He was described as "quote violent and dangerous, especially to his wife." He had injured his mother's head with chopper while, when attacking his wife. He is epileptic and irritable after fits and addicted to drink. He was discharged four and a half months later. But then, only 10 days later, on the 9th of September was admitted to the City of London Lunatic Asylum at Stone Kent as a, quote, insane person after having attacked and stabbed his wife. His wife claimed that she had four miscarriages because of his increasingly dangerous behavior as he believed she was cheating on him and that for the past nine years, he had periodic epileptic attacks and was becoming increasingly more violent. And stop sleeping with him. <laughs> Yeah, stop trying to procreate with a crazy man maybe just leave it be
0: you're completely crazy you want to have a baby (laughs) that'll fix
2: everything you already have two kids leave it at that yeah maybe just (laughs) call it good maybe go find someone else um as we stated earlier hyams was also said to practice self-abuse hey you know if we forgot masturbation (laughs) it's rubbing
1: the
0: skin off jacking the ripper
2: <laughs> i only want it to be known as jacking the ripper okay, from, you know, from now thing. on jilling the ripper and jacking the ripper absolutely <laughs> don't come in i might be jilling off <laughs> <Ugh>.
0: <laughs>
2: coming soon our book on human sexuality i see what you I see what you did there coming soon <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh that was unintentional and no <laughs> no it
2: was unintentional but i love it <laughs> So it wasn't really important, just wanted to throw it in there.
1: I wanted to remind y'all. So did yeah. he. In case you forgot. <laughs> yeah, so that's what she said. That's what she said.
2: Himes was sent back to Colney Hatch Asylum on January 4th, 1890. He was described as a, as crafty and dangerous. For example, he had asked for a knife so that he could kill himself, but then when he got a hold of a sharp piece of steel, he used it to attack one of the medical personnel by cutting his neck that crafty
1: <laughs> it's not crafty when you ask for something and someone gives it to you hey that's their bad
0: can i have a knife
2: i'm gonna kill myself yeah sure here here you go, go. Now. Well, yeah why are you attacking me it doesn't say that <laughs> they gave it to him he just found a sharp piece of steel oh, okay yes but it's funnier this way so yeah. they were probably like no you can't have a knife you crazy son of a bitch and he yeah. was like i'll show you i'll show you i have a piece of mirror over here See, you could have
0: just given me the knife and spared your own life. Well, you know, blood. I mean, they still lived. Hey. (laughs) Maybe I am a leprechaun.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So why was he suspected? Well, he was Jewish, first of all. Second, he was deemed a lunatic, clearly. Uh, He became progressively more violent and had attacked more than one person with a knife. The first time he was institutionalized was around seven weeks after Mary Kelly's murder, which is when the murder stopped. He was raised on Miter Street, which was right off of Miter Square, where Catherine Eddowes had been murdered and her body had been discovered outside of Number 8 Miter Street, which had been operated as a cigar manufacturing business by Hyam Hyam's uncle, Louis Levy. It's alliterative of names. names, I can't.
0: <laughs> Some comic book naming here. Bruce Banner. Peter Parker, Lewis Levy, Hyam Hyams, Hyam Hyams, <laughs> Hyman Hymans. <laughs> I'm
2: sorry. Why
0: did putting an S on the end make it that much funnier? Hyman Hymans, because he's
2: multiple Hymans. Oh, God. Oh, God. Also, after Hyam Hyams, I almost said Hyman Hymans. <laughs> You're welcome. <It> <laughs> <laughs> was admitted to the white chapel workhouse infirmary the first time he gave his address as 217 jubilee street right next door was a was a leather shop owned by a mr marsh in october of 1888 emily marsh's daughter said that a quote tall strange man dressed in a long black coat with either a prussian or clerical collar entered and asked for the address of george lusk the head of the white chapel vigilance committee She had sent one of the boys working in the shop to follow the man, and quote, Later on, a man loosely fitting the description of the stranger was seen by Lusk watching his house. This was followed by Lusk receiving the so-called Lusk Kidney in the mail. This would also explain the differences between the Dear Boss letter and the From Hell letter, if Hyams Haim Hyams was progressively becoming worse mentally, the way he wrote would also change, leading to the nearly illiterate crazed From Hell letter. Could he have been Jack the Ripper? It's entirely possible. Some of the evidence is circumstantial, but seeing as he was never a suspect to Sir Robert Anderson, there was no real investigation into him, which didn't lead to any evidence that we could discern from. I'm inclined to believe that if it wasn't Haim, it was at least someone who had a similar mental condition, but unfortunately, the truth will remain a mystery. And while we have presented some good, solid cases here for and against each of these possibilities, being the Ripper, there are some out there theories that seem more like Reddit-grade fanfiction than anything based in facts. Sometimes those are fun, though. They Maybe. are. <laughs> just for a bit. But for don't a look giggle. up Jack the Ripper fanfiction. Please don't. Don't do no. it. No. <laughs> It's going to be
0: a bad, it's going to be bad times. I was only kidding, so please don't.
2: (laughs) Uh, So we're going to turn this over to our sacrifice. Give him one last thing to say before we chuck him into the sauce. He's still tenderizing after all. He's marinating. Shh. (laughs) He thinks it's a jacuzzi. Shut up. Shut
1: up. (laughs) It's totally a jacuzzi.
3: Okay, so I'm just going to cover this really quickly because I absolutely hate this theory. Yeah, and it's not; it's kind of supported, kind of not. So it's the theory that H.H. Holmes is also Jack the Ripper. Now Mm -hmm. we'll probably do an episode on H.H. Holmes eventually, but he's an American SEAL killer active around the same time, and he was active in Chicago. But he had gone over to London, is what the theory is, did his killing there, and then came back to continue his killing in America. Now, where this comes from is actually an ancestor of his. Or I guess he would be the ancestor. Does that work both ways? No. A descendant. Descendant. Descendant Descendant of his. uh, Jeff Mudgett. He wrote a book called Bloodstains, which is just a creepy title anyways, Very. uh, that is about these two diaries he inherited from his grandfather that belonged to H. H. Holmes. Now Mudgett is confirmed to be related to Holmes. Like, he actually is legitimately related to him.
1: So that was um, Holmes's actual name. He changed his name to H. H. Holmes, but his birth name was last name was Mudgett. So now I
3: find it. I, I mean, you ladies would probably do this. He brags a little bit about being related to him. It seems.
1: I, I mean, I would.
2: Yes, <laughs> I, I would one hundred percent brag about that.
3: I, on the other hand, would keep it quiet completely.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. I guess it would depend on the crowd. Like, if you knew that you were in, like, a true crime-loving <laughs> crowd, you'd be like, well, I'm related to H.H. H. Holmes. They would probably understand it, but if you just, like, walked into the DMV and were like, yes, 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 I'm Patrick, the descendant of H.H. H. Holmes. Treat me like a god. I see no problems with this.
3: <laughs> My concern is the fact that what if, you're doing one of these things, and suddenly someone stands up and goes, I'm a descendant of one of his victims. Ooh. What, bitch? And like <laughs> challenges you to then a you fucking go, like Star Trek fight. Then
1: you go, well, now we have to fight.
2: <laughs> now <laughs> oh, I gotta put shit. you in my murder hotel. Now I have to kill you. <laughs> God damn
0: it.
1: <laughs> I wasn't planning on doing this today.
3: So, uh, Mudgett is a lawyer. He's also a retired uh, veteran. Um he went on to write this book after getting the uh, diaries. And had the handwriting tested to prove they were Holmes. Okay. And they passed the testing. It is his writing. Uh, didn't have to do the weird ink test that everyone else did, I guess. Either that or they passed it, and so there was no news about it.
0: That was the tables, ladders, and chairs. Yeah. <laughs>
3: um, In the diaries, it labels a section where he went through London with an assistant, a literal partner in crime, during the Whitechapel murders. According to Mudgett, the diaries describe training sessions between Holmes and his assistant. The man was instructed to murder prostitutes and exclusively uh, mutilate their bodies in order to cause a sensation in the country. Holmes' intent here was to distract from the from his own murders and sexual organ harvesting of upper class women. Which is confusing because these were the only ones found like this. Like, if they had found other women yeah. slaughtered like this, they would have thought they were uh more ripper victims. Yeah. So saying that this was to hide that he had done the, uh that he was doing this to upper class women doesn't make any sense. No. There were no other victims.
2: He no, was, because
1: he he was more interested in just selling skeletons for money.
2: Well that <laughs> and like one would think, just knowing like how today's society works, if they even like had a breath of a scent that like an upper class uh woman had passed away. They would have been all over that. If anything, the upper class woman's death would have overshadowed the prostitute's death.
3: Well, now, you might be wondering why upper class women, and mm. there's a fun little reasoning behind that. Oh, no. Oh, boy. And it's the fact that he believed that the ovaries of the upper class women would be better and that he could uh, harvest the hormones because they'd be healthier to pr- uh, suit his use uh, uh, serum he was trying to create so that he would live an unnaturally long life.
0: He was
1: trying to become a vampire by eating ovaries.
3: According to this diary.
0: So he's pulling an Elizabeth Bathory, essentially. So well, he wasn't
1: respect. bathing in it though; he was just eating them. Like he was making himself a twisted devil's omelet.
2: So, question: Did he like them over easy?
1: What... I knew oh you were going to say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: he liked them poached.
0: That's it. That's it, everybody. I'm out of here. Taking all my stuff off. Now, bye. Everybody, come
3: You're back. not wearing back anything. You don't get off that easy. Get back here. Um,
2: I'll be here all night, guys. T- t- tip through waitress, try the veal.
3: Now, coincidentally, around the same time that he inherited the diaries, he also inherited the murderer's uh, arrogant and demeaning spirit. Or sorry, demanding spirit. He literally sees his great-great-grandfather's face and hears the man's voice in his head trying to convince him to uh, become a killer as well.
1: Is he on a watch list?
3: This is all in the book <laughs> that he published in 2011.
0: How did
2: I'm that guessing, get published? I'm
0: guessing self-published. <laughs>
2: published and made money off of. Like, how did that get published without, with someone reading it going, ah? think this guy's all right in the head i think maybe i should call somebody someone should call someone somebody should do a well
1: check on this guy
3: now the doctors are saying that the hallucinations and all that come from a brain tumor and a lifetime of uh unhealthy seizures mm. which i didn't understand when it said unhealthy seizures because like, are, kind of are, are there healthy are there healthy ones
0: healthy seizures yeah brain tumor named hh H. holmes <laughs> healthy
1: seizures you know they come with a side of carrots
3: <laughs> now this there's plenty of issues with this the fact that none of these murders fit holmes's mo anyways no mm-hmm. i mean he did the murder hotel yeah so it, or murder castle is actually i think what they started calling yes. it now the cover of the book just says based on a true story bloodstains and then there's a quote i was born with the devil in me he has been with me ever since uh and it's credited as holmes's uh, quote under his actual name
1: that is a quote from holmes
3: mm-hmm. and then just says jeff mudgett after that <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was like, that is in Holmes, because Holmes did write an autobiography while he was in uh, Moyamensing prison before he was executed. And that is one of the quotes from his autobiography.
0: I was born with the devil in me, and he's been with me ever since. Really, you don't think he's gotten just a little bit bored with you by now? I think maybe he's left you.
3: But, so, brain tumor, that's why he hallucinates. Oh, wait, the book goes on to explain that the tumor miraculously disappears.
2: Interesting.
3: Yeah. So if
2: the tumor is causing the death thoughts and it miraculously disappears, one would think the death thoughts would, would go away. Would
1: disappear as well.
2: <laughs> and have they?
3: Now, I have my own reasons past that stuff. Why I don't like this I mean, obviously the MMO. Um, MMO? <laughs> the <Yeah>. MO. Uh, <laughs> but there's also the fact that Holmes was married... By this point, to his second wife was also uh, teaching, had been going to college, all kinds of stuff like that. He was living a plenty busy life here in America.
0: Wherever did he find the time?
3: Especially because he was also beating his wife during all this. Uh, that too. This is the second wife uh, for him to have been beating. Uh, so there definitely was hostility towards women. But I don't know. It's not the same. Like, I feel like if he yeah. was... Ripper, he would have done more than just beat her. Yeah, he
1: wouldn't have suffocated people and built like this crazy maze of a hotel to murder people. He would just stab people, which he he did not do. No,
2: He was all about the game, whereas Jack the Ripper was more so of mutilation and... Stabby, stabby. Stabby, stabby. I mean,
3: the travel was possible, and with the different jobs and the fact that he owned the hotel and all that, I mean, it's possible he would have had the funds for it. None of that is unfeasible plus then I mean, the mustache description description still works yeah. for him yeah
0: mm-hmm.
3: but i feel like people would recognize the american walking around the same time that women are being slaughtered yeah yeah so but i that's all i have on that is that's just not a theory i personally it's, support yeah, it's just a
1: silly silly theory
0: <laughs> absolutely and I, I mean you never know they were paying too much attention to the jews walking around to really focus on americans so i'm not saying i agree with the theory i think it's dumb but just saying
2: well, suffice to say, if anyone ever does solve this 131-year-old crime, that it would be a cold case to end all cold cases, but perhaps it will always be one of those unsolved mysteries left to the ages. Until we invent time machines, that is, then all bets are off.
1: I'm gonna go get me a dinosaur.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a pet
1: dino. <laughs> those are the first two things I'm going to do. Pet a dinosaur, punch a pilgrim in the face.
2: In that order. In that order. Oh, you could be on your dinosaur when you punch him in the face. Just
1: ride in on a Velociraptor and pop.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's gonna be amazing. And he's just
1: gonna go. Oh, I'm like, you know what you did, and then I just disappear in the mist.
0: I'm gonna go back in time and force them to change the name of that book. You know. Oh,
1: you know. We know the book. We know.
3: (laughs) I'm just gonna make sure my parents meet and fall in love and drive a really cool car.
1: Okay, Marty McFly,
0: (laughs) (laughs) with a eccentric older man
3: yeah yeah
0: <laughs> seems like a good I- seems yeah. like a good idea why wouldn't i seems brilliant
1: So just to recap a little bit, just to shout out our sources that we kind of, we use a lot of them, Um, but casebook.org is a big one. So if you're interested in the case and you wanted to kind of do more research yourself, that is a handy resource. Uh, It's used by detectives and people who've been researching uh, Ripper for a long time, Uh, amateur detectives as well. It's kind of just nice little pool of resources for um, any kind of reference you can think of for Jack the Ripper. Also the complete Jack the Ripper. Um, is a great book as well which is av- also available on what
2: Jade? It's available on Audible. Yeah. I know this has been a longer podcast than we usually do so you might have forgot um, if you want to check out any of the books that we mentioned during this podcast on Jack the Ripper or just any book on true crime or any book you want head over to audibletrial.com slash this spooky show you'll get a free 30 day trial and a free book It's free. It supports the show. What are you doing? Go do it.
0: Why haven't you done it yet? What's wrong with you? We're waiting. Go. How dare
2: you? (laughs) Again, it's audibletrial.com slash show.
0: Well, thank you for joining us on this journey. And while we may not have solved the case, we still got to make ear puns and speak in bad British accents, which kind of makes up for it, don't you think? I think
1: so. I think think
0: so, too. I think so myself. I do. I do. So join us in two weeks when the ghoul babes spin you the scariest stories that Internet Creepypasta can manage in episode six, Scary Stories to Tell on the Podcast. Also, be sure to check us out on Spotify. I believe we also are on iTunes, Stitcher, our website, Mm -hmm, which our website is thisspookyshow.wixsite.com slash And we're also on Tumblr as well, which we are this-spooky-show. A little different. We also have merch.
1: And we we have merch. We do have merch. And if
0: you like what we do, rate
1: us on Podchaser.
2: Please do. And rate on iTunes, Spotify, all that fun
1: stuff. Mm. Feedback is is great. We love feedback. Yes.
0: Oh, yeah. We're excited every single time. So
2: (laughs) please keep it coming. Come on. And if you want to hear an unedited, unedited version of this podcast, head over to our Patreon, throw some money at us. You can listen to a two-hour special showcasing just how crazy we are. We really are. We really are. It's, yeah.
3: Plus, the donations to the Patreon will allow them to replace me once one of the sacrifices finally works.
0: That's true. And we can hire more Invisible interns. We can, definitely. We can I also, get our wheel and
2: upgrade. Ooh.
0: <laughs> Ooh. I also would like to thank our uh, sacrifice once again, maybe for the last time, because <laughs> he about to be boiled. Thank you, Quincy. <laughs> thank you. For editing as well. So once again, episode six is in two weeks, titled Scary Stories to Tell in the Podcast. Stay, Stay spooky, spooky, friends. friends.